right. Amen. Glad you're here this morning. If you have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to be in Psalm 32 today, uh, which if you have a paper Bible is about halfway in. So you can just drop it in half, see if you land around the Psalms and find your way to Psalm 32. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen. We'd love to give you a Bible and a readable English translation on your way out. And boy, if you're just new to the Bible, uh, the Gospels are great. We would suggest you go there. But if that's a little overwhelming and you don't have somebody walking with you through it, let us do that. Let us walk with you through it. But if all of those things are no, you're, you're not willing to read the Gospels first and you're not willing to do it with us, the Psalms are another great place. The Psalms are a place that are surprising because they're thousands of years old. But when you read them, uh, they show you your heart. They show you what you look like on the inside. And they show you in a compelling way. You think that it's all going to be... Um, kind of washed clean and, and sort of gloss over what it is to actually be a person and to actually experience the extremes of the human condition, but they don't. They speak about agony and they speak about pain. Um, they speak about shame and they speak a lot about guilt. They talk about what it is to want and not have. Um, they talk about longing, um, but they also talk about really beautiful emotions. They're really beautiful things and really beautiful thoughts and um, in the Psalms, man, I just can't recommend enough that, especially if you are a believer, you're soaking yourself in God's word towards your heart. Okay, so why are we in Psalm 32? Well, we've been talking about good guides or examples in Scripture, people who lived lives that were, as we made the case multiple weeks, messy and yet given to us as examples Lord knows we've already got the messy part. So they show us mess, but then they show us what God does with messy people. It's very helpful. Today, we're going to talk about, and it's our second, and then we're moving on, King David, but, but of, of a part of his life that he's also uh, famous for. And we'll, we'll talk about why in a second. So listen, I hope you're having a great uh, summer. I don't know, man. I mean, unless you have kids, summer just feels like hotter winter. I mean, you still work. I don't know that anybody else is just like hanging out. But, you know, it's summertime, so you feel like maybe you are going to do more. You get outside a little bit more. I hope you're having a great time uh, exploring and, and maybe doing a little bit of, of fun stuff you don't get to do when we're all snowed in. I don't know if you uh, experienced this, but as I get older, less and less, I, I, I think this, but... Most of the time when I'm out and about, I just assume that other people around me are having a great time. This may be totally bunk, and I think as I get older it, it is, but I see people around me and I think about my problem and I assume that they don't have it. And so I assume that other people must be having a great time because they definitely are not in like financial trouble or dieting or just had an argument with their wife or uh, said something that was a big swing and a miss with a kid or you know, have a bad back or, or whatever your current situation is, you look at these other people and assume they're probably just killing it. They're probably having a great day. They probably ate whatever they wanted for lunch. And, and you just assume as you get older, though, and you meet more people and you talk to them, you experience more stages of life. And so you know what their stage of life actually feels like from the inside. You start to realize that, of course not. In fact, I think most people are probably not having all that good of a time. Maybe you find ways around it or find ways to not feel it too heavily. But I think most of us, most of the time, even in the land of the free with unbelievable wealth, uh, experience a lot of difficulty, a lot of emotional difficulty, a lot of stuff we would rather not feel. We feel 
a lot. And, and if you are a Christian, then there are promises, like there are good things about being a Christian. And so you think, well, when does that happen? You know, like, are, are, are the Christian people happier than the non-Christian people? Is that a distinction? Do people at Hope Church really feel significantly better Monday through Saturday than the people that are not at Hope Church? I don't know. I mean, biblically, Jesus says that we're going to suffer. In this world, you will have troubles. So there's going to be opposition to the work that we do, but there's also just going to be, like, run-of-the-mill difficulty. You're going to experience a lot of the same difficulty and pain as other people. So what's the distinction? How do we feel happy? Or how, how do Christians have a joy that is down in their heart, deep, deep down in their heart? Well, Psalm 32 begins with the promise of it. Look at, if you've got it, Psalm 32, look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's the beauty, and that's the promise. That's the pain and the difficulty, but also, if you're seeing what he's saying there, the joy, the specific joy of a Christian. It sounds really nice. At the end of the psalm, he comes back to this same idea. This is the bookend of the psalm. It's telling you both the theme and the promise. Look at the last two verses of the psalm. In verses 10 and 11, it says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I hope you can get past the language there and understand what he's actually saying. Our ability to communicate as modern people has become relentlessly casual. We don't use like poetic structure to communicate anymore. We do everything we can to put emojis, God help us, into our communication, like serious, real communication. But if you're willing to just kind of parse apart something that seems a little bit poetic and see what it's actually saying... He's saying that there is something here that is so good that you would literally shout for the joy of it. If you have not, please plan sometime to come to our brothers and sisters church service at one o'clock when you can your wand and serve. When they do their service, they express themselves differently than Americans do. And that expression, and I don't know, I don't speak Kenya Wandan, so I'm not real sure what's happening, is beautiful. And it's way more <laughs> expressive. <laughs> I, I would love for you to experience that sometime because I want you to see something of what it's like for this psalm to come to life. He's saying, oh, righteous, shout for joy, all you upright in heart, which none of us would ever speak like. But what he's actually saying is that if you understand what's being said, if you understand the promise that's there or the gift that's being given, you would feel so good. You would, you would experience a pleasure so deep that you would literally go, whoa, ah, <laughs> like roller coasters. That's the only place that you do that. The top, we went to Lagoon last week. When you get to the top of uh, Cannibal, I don't know if you've ridden this at Lagoon. They take you and you get strapped in. The first thing you do is go into a tower. It takes you way up high. It goes up and you look out over the Great Salt Lake and then you die, right? Like then it just immediately drops. And all you can do is, 
And that's a little bit more terror than joy, but it's the same kind of thing of an experience that is so impactful that you speak, that you shout, that you make a noise. He's saying that there is something that could go down into your heart and be so thoroughly good that you would shout for joy. I want that. I want you to want that, and I want you to have that. And the way that he's describing it is he's describing it as a result of a cleansing that takes place. The one who trusts in the Lord, having the steadfast love that he rejoices in, and yet at the beginning and through the middle of the psalm, he makes it really clear that that joy is coming from transgressions forgiven, sin covered, the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And that's where it gets a little dark. Look at verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Whoa! dark. If you want the joy, you've got to go through a pretty dark path, a pretty hairy path. What he's describing is confession. And confession is awful. Have you done it? You may be a little kid who's caught, but your parents still want to make you confess. And it's hilarious on YouTube to watch those videos of like the kid sitting with peanut butter everywhere. And they go, all right, Timothy, who was in the peanut butter? (laughs) I don't know who was in the peanut butter. And it's like in their hair and on the paint and everywhere. That's funny. Not for the kid. And as you grow older and the kind of things that you do and the kind of relationships that you might break become more real, the prospect of confession becomes more crazy terrifying, bone melting. That's what David's describing. He's not just describing the fear of confession. He's describing the pain of what it is to be separated from the Lord, to decide that he's just going to go without him, that he's going to experience the conviction the Lord lays upon him. And I, I don't know what kind of skeletons are rattling around in your closet, but David is describing his bones wasting away through his groaning all the day long. Do you see what I was talking about with Psalms? Talking about like the extremes of the human condition? We've got here him saying there is a state in which you can feel so awful that it feels like your bones are wasting away. There's a joy that is so good you shout. There is a pain that is so terrible you feel like you're currently dying. Death is taking place through an emotional experience, through a relational experience. Uh, what takes place, the the transition from A to B, the thing that makes him go from verses 3 through 5 to verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11 is confession. And that's what I want us to see this morning because that's something David guides us in. That's something that he wrote this psalm about. That's something that we as a people need desperately because I think we're going to try and settle into some sort of middle ground where we don't admit our sin nor do we confess it and experience the joy that God has for us. And we can't do that. 
We've got to be a people who are authentically believers and a people who authentically embrace what God's given us, which is a realization of our sin, but through confession, the grace to experience his mercy. How do we get there? Well, a guy named John Stott wrote a book, and it's basically a pamphlet. It's like a 115-page kind of range, but it's, it's called Confess Your Sins, The Way of Reconciliation. I'm going to tell you the title because I know of all my book recommendations. This is the one everybody's going to go get. <laughs> confession. I'm in. Yeah. Confess your sins, the way of reconciliation by a guy named John Stott. But he says, we try to cover our sins from ourselves and God so as to leave our comfortable complacency undisturbed. And it is this that is unhealthy, the covering of our sins, not the uncovering of them. Such self-deception is ruinous to all spiritual health. For one of the most elementary rules of mental health and spiritual health is to know the truth about ourselves and to admit it. Christianity is not the opposite of psychotherapy. You go to a therapist, they try to help you understand who you are. Now, some secular therapists may take who you are and try to support it. Well, okay, let's help you to deal with the parts that seem more painful and let's help you express the parts that seem more pleasurable. Christianity doesn't do less than that. It does more. It starts with who you are but then takes you to who you should be. And who you should be is back in relationship with the Lord that loves you. That may not be a thing that you want or a thing that you seek, but what John is saying is, John Stott is saying is, that that, that self-deception is ruinous, and that uncovering of sin, that willingness to see yourself as you really are, is the way forward, the way to actually getting to the joy that makes you want to shout. So how does David model this? Well, he didn't just write this psalm. He wrote this psalm in the midst of a life that had sin in it. You know, he's known for his victories. We talked about him killing Goliath with a stone last week. There's another story about him dancing in his joy as the ark was brought, the presence of God was brought back into the people of Israel's camp. But he's as or more famous for his failures. You know, he, uh, he decided that he desired a woman, and so he took her. And he tried to pretend it didn't happen, but she became pregnant. So he brought her husband back, who was away fighting one of David's wars. And yet the man showed too much integrity to fall into David's sort of plan to play off the pregnancy as his baby instead of David's. And so David continued the cover-up by having the husband killed. So if you're keeping count, he slept with this woman who was married to another person. He then tried to hide it, so much so that he killed the husband. Now that, as a king, you think you would be able to cover up your sin. But he couldn't. A guy named Nathan, who was God's prophet came to visit David and he reeled him in. David, who was sat in the king's seat, was the one who brought justice to the people of Israel. And so as Nathan is describing to David a story, David is sitting as judge in this story. And in the story, Nathan kind of reels David in with this, what sounds like a real story, but turns out to just be this parable about a guy with one sheep and a guy with all these lots and lots and lots of sheep. And the guy with lots of sheep kills the one guy's sheep when a friend comes in. And David gets so angry about it, he says, the guy that did this deserves to die. And Nathan pierces through David's lies by saying, you are the man. The story's about you, bud. 
That confrontation leads David to write Psalm 51, not 32, but Psalm 51, which is a psalm of repentance. Please memorize that psalm. And in that psalm, which we talked about last summer, otherwise we probably would have preached on it now, but I know you guys memorized my sermon, so I was like, well, I don't want to preach on Psalm 51 again this summer when I preached on the last summer. They already know it. But, but when he wrote Psalm 51, he, he believed that God forgave him. That's a crazy theme in that psalm. If you go read it this afternoon, look how quickly he's sure that God forgave him of the sins that he committed against Bathsheba and Uriah and the people of Israel. He's confident immediately that God forgives, that he would be washed whiter than snow, that he would be purged, that he would be clean. And yet, I I don't know if you've actually lived life with a terrible sin. After you've repented and after you've stopped, after you've confessed and people have forgiven you, it's still hard to live with that shame. I would imagine David, who had several more experiences through his life, where the sin that he had committed and the blood that he brought came back on his own head, had many times to remember the sin that he had committed, to ask whether or not he actually is forgiven by a holy God and can actually stand before a holy God. So some writers think that Psalm 32 was also written by David in response to his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah as a way in which to remember what it is to confess and be forgiven as a way to pierce through guilt and shame and get back to that place of knowing that he actually is forgiven by a holy God. How hard it is to be separated from a holy God, but how good it is to be forgiven and brought back into relationship with the holy God. And that's why we get those verses three through five where he's talking about what it is to not confess and feel his bones waste away, but then what it feels like to confess And have that grace be given. And so then he says, verses 6 and 7, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to God, to you, at the time, excuse me, at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. Selah. What's he saying? Uh, Again, what are you going to do here? You got to look at a little poetry. You got to think about it critically. What he's saying is, if you confess, God forgives, three through five. Then he says, therefore, let everybody who is godly, who has received that before, who desires to know the Lord and be forgiven by him, offer prayers to the Lord at a time when he may be found. And then he describes one of those times. Surely in the rush of great water, waters, they shall not reach him. He's saying that danger is still around. Like asking for forgiveness and being forgiven is a one-time thing, but emotionally it's something that needs to be repeated. Like God really does forgive. This is not on him to wish-wash and flip-flop on whether or not he actually loves you. His his love is steadfast. But if you're somebody who betrays other people, it's not easy for you to trust. If you're somebody who has experienced shame and guilt in a deep way, that doesn't rub off quickly. You got to keep putting that in the laundry. You got to keep hitting that with OxyClean. You got to keep going back to that. Yes, it's been taken care of, but do you believe it's been taken care of? 
He's talking about somebody who has to remember, who has that option of prayer. He can always remember. He can always go back. He can always call again on this Lord. That he becomes then a hiding place for him. As the Proverbs say, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Okay, great. Do we do that? I don't know. I mean, are you, are you doing this? When I talk about confession, are all of you kind of nodding along like, yep, yeah, that's hard, but it's a really wonderful thing. It's a regular part of my life. I don't know. I think there may be some reasons that we wouldn't do it. This seems surprising, and I don't know that we want to admit it, but I think that we should. I think one of the reasons that we don't confess our sin is that we'd like to keep sinning. You know, you feel guilty? I think some people are willing to accept guilty because they want pleasure. This is really interesting. I was reading, um, there was a, a, like a scientific journal that was talking about some marketing researchers from Yale and Northwestern that had taken several studies, uh, other you know, scientific studies that had been done, and it was from a marketing perspective. They were using psychology to understand better how to market and sell things. <laughs> That's what they were doing. So anyway, they, they used uh, these studies to decide how pleasure can be affected positively. Uh, are there ways to take what, what feels good and make it feel better? So if our product does something good, are there ways to make you think it does things even better than it better than it does? Uh, to make your perception of it so positive that you'll buy and buy again and tell other people. So they want you to feel pleasure at a thing. How, how do we best enhance that experience? What is crazy, and the whole point of the article, is that if they can make you feel guilty before that thing, before that pleasure, the pleasure goes up, not down. Think about this. It's saying, if they can induce in you feelings of guilt before you experience the pleasure of their product, your pleasure goes up up, not down. Let's look at it a different way. If they make you feel disgust before you try their product, your pleasure goes down. Yeah, my stomach's already turned over. I don't want the good thing that you have. The way that they would do it is they would try and make you feel something by having you write out sentences or remember your past or whatever. They would, they would try to induce different things in you and then they would say, okay, that study's now done. Let's now do a taste test and they give you some good chocolate like a truffle, and you would bite into the truffle. And if they had just elicited feelings of disgust in you, then when you bite into the truffle, the truffle pleasure goes down. But if they had just elicited feelings of guilt in you, another negative emotion, you bite into that truffle and it tastes better than it would otherwise. Why? Well, brothers and sisters, humans... We have learned to associate those two emotional experiences. We have gotten to a place where we so consistently seek out pleasures that also bring about guilt that if we feel guilt, we've been primed to expect pleasure. And that's not a Christian study. That's not some kind of theological presupposition. That is a marketing researcher who just wants to make money selling you chocolates. That's scary to me. That you and I have done enough and felt guilty about it, that we actually get to a place where guilt makes us feel pleasure. I hope that scares you. 
Because guilt is a right reaction given by God in your body to things that are going to kill you. Yeah, maybe too many chocolates will kill you eventually. But the sin that God outlaws that we've decided is pleasurable will kill you so much greater because, because what sin does is it separates you from the life that is God. Oh, be, be careful here, man. It's saying what I think we all know, which is there's a part of us that says not only is sin good, the pleasure of sin good, but it's worth feeling guilty so much so that even sometimes guilty feels good all by itself. Oh, we're in a bad way. Oh, we got to change that. You may not want to confess because you want to keep doing this thing that you think is so good. Well, God help us. There's guilt, but then there's also shame reasons that we don't want to confess. You know, I talked about the difference between guilt and disgust. A guilty pleasure is still a pleasure, but a disgust, it sort of withers the pleasures around it. Some of you are not like trying to pretend that bad things are good. Some of you are convinced that you really are bad. Some of you walk around with what we would consider shame, which is not I do bad things, but I am bad. You've decided that what you are is something that's not allowed. And so you hide yourself as well as you can because if people really knew who you are, if they really got a little bit deeper down, they would find something that would be so repellent that they would definitely break off the relationship. Well, if shame is what you feel, how could David know that he was forgiven? Like, like David experienced the pleasure of his sin. He experienced whatever kind of pleasure maybe he felt from like getting away with it. But then when Nathan confronted him, he actually experienced real guilt and shame. Psalm 51 came from a real reaction to his sin, actually seeing it for what it was. How then could David really feel that he was forgiven? Meaning, if you're ashamed, how can confession really clean deep enough for you to feel like it actually worked and you now are something different? And that shame starts to shrink rather than continuing to fester. Well, David, who broke God's law, knew that it was actually God's law, not other people's law. Think about this for a second, and this is really dark. But if you read Psalm 51, it actually says, against you and you only have I sinned. And when you read that, you think, no, no, David, you actually sinned against a lot of people. I think Uriah might say you sinned against him too. And I think Bathsheba might say that you sinned against her too. But that's actually not correct. Yes, of course what he did to them was desperately wrong, disgustingly wrong. But to say that he sinned means that he broke God's law. If you take God out of the equation, then what he did is really just the strong enjoying the weak. It's really just might is right, which is an ethic that makes sense within an evolutionary sort of mindset. The only reason that what David did was really capital W wrong is because God, who is over all things, declared it to be wrong. So the first thing that you're going to do, if you're going to actually understand how to have your guilt remitted, how to have your shame reduced, is to admit that the person that you really have to deal with here is God. That it's not all these other people, all these other people that may forgive you or may not, all these other people that you may have access to or may not, all these other people who have sinned against you. Because let's remember that shame often is felt because of something that somebody else has done to you, not just things that you've done out in the world. 
But whatever those other people are, whatever access you have to them, whatever ways in which they will or won't forgive you, your actual sin, the person that you actually need to be right with is God. Now, how did David know that God would forgive him? Well, Leviticus 16 tells us about a ceremony that God gave to Moses and Aaron for the people of Israel that had been happening for hundreds of years by the time of David. 1500 B.C., they start doing this thing. What they did was one time a year, the most holy person in Israel would sacrifice a bull for himself. And then the blood of that bull would be like a cleansing thing for him. He could now be a clean representative before the people, for, before God, for the people of Israel. And he would come before God with two goats. And he would confess over those goats the sin of the people for that year. You imagine he's confessing in categories because if he's going by incidents, like it's going to take the rest of the year, right? But he just confessed the people's sins for that year over these two goats. And they had two goats for a reason. The first goat would then be killed and its blood as an innocent would cover the guilty. That goat did none of those sins, but those sins would be confessed over that goat. And then that goat would be slaughtered so that its blood would be shed. Its, its blood would die for the sins that were confessed on it. Innocent for the guilty. And they called that atonement. And that word is so scary. What does it mean? I don't know how to remember it. Okay. It's a way where two separated people can become at one in a moment. Atonement. At one meant. It's a way for these people that are separated to be made at one. For God and the people who are separated because of this goat that brought about an atonement, now they are at one again. The first goat died so that the sin was forgiven, but there was another goat. See, the second goat they would lead out into the wilderness and cast it away. Not like off a cliff. They would just let it go. And probably after seeing the other goat's experience, the goat would quickly get away from the people of Israel. It would go out into the wilderness and take its chances. Well, what did that goat symbolize? See, the first goat died that the sins may be forgiven, but the second goat was released to show that the sins were also forgotten. <laughs> what, what does it mean when God, Holy One, forgives? He doesn't just forgive. He also forgets. If you feel shame, I want you to really understand this. God loves you enough to take your sin upon himself and take it away and then forget about it and look at you and love you and recategorize you, value you as his own. <laughs> isn't, isn't that enough to make you want to shout for joy? Like, I know that's not our scene, right? Come back at one and you can shout a lot more than you do here. I get it. But doesn't it make you want to shout? It should. How do you see that in the New Testament? Well, Hebrews is such a great way to bridge these two. And in Hebrews 8, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other, want each one his neighbor, and, they shall, uh, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They don't have to remind each other to do the things that God commands because they're all going to know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. Another word for sins. And I will remember their sins no more. This is why we celebrate him. 
This is why David's life is a good example to us, not only as warrior and not only as sinner, but as repentant sinner who is now singer, who is the joyful expresser of what God did in his heart and life. Listen, if you are wondering how to express the gospel to other people, this is your answer. Why do other people need to be at Hope Church? Why do you need to invite people to be at Hope Church? It's because they're carrying around a lot of shame. Or they're not, and they're enjoying pleasures that should be guilt. They're drinking poison. And they need the kind of love and forgiveness that is offered by a God who loved you enough to forgive you. How do you talk about the gospel? It's not about just memorizing a paragraph. Please do. That's a great way to do it. But do it because, or if you don't memorize the paragraph, do it as somebody who's just telling somebody else, listen, this is the greatest thing that can possibly happen to you. It has happened to me. I'm enjoying it now in tears and smiles. And I want you to know the Lord that can give you this too. Listen, the Lord is saying that he can clean you He can fix you and he can reunite you to himself forever. Uh, If you're not a believer this morning, I, I hope that you want that. If you do want that, I hope that you want that enough to like talk to us about it. Let's get there. We got to get there. I don't know what you believe currently. Let's talk about it. Let's try to understand why is Christianity true? But if it is true and satisfying, won't won't you have it? Won't you enjoy it? Won't you be his? Oh, and if you will, then watch as that joy and that love fills you up so much that you become somebody, having been forgiven much, who loves much. B.B. Warfield. Gosh, I quoted John Stott and B.B. Warfield about joy. These two are like very, you know, buttoned up and not very like loud people. But dead Presbyterian Princeton genius said, We are sinners and we know ourselves to be sinners, lost and helpless in ourselves. But we're saved sinners. And it is our salvation which gives tone to our life, a tone of joy which swells in exact proportion to the sense we have of what we really do deserve. For it is he to whom much is forgiven who loves much and who loving rejoices much. I need you to hear this. And if you're somebody who doesn't ever confess your sin to God or anybody else, talk to somebody else to help you understand how to confess your sin to God. A good friend, a mentor in biblical counseling, this guy named Henry Bieber, he talks about this and he quotes that proverb about how if you confess your sin and leave it, you're forgiven. He talks about how he needs people to confess stuff to him so that he can say to them, what else you got? It's his great joy to let them say things that are awful so then he can say, yeah, God will forgive that too. And just saying it out loud and having another Christian, somebody else who understands who God is, repeat that God really does forgive that. Now let's help you figure out how to walk away from it. It's healing to your bones. Won't you do it? Do it safely. Do it well. Find somebody you can trust. Or me. (laughs) Hopefully you can trust me too. And let's Let's, let's talk. Let's become a people who are joyful even through pain because we know that we're forgiven. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I pray on this weekend, which is about all kinds of different things and, and probably doesn't feel like the kind of weekend where you're going to do a lot of emotional heavy lifting, Lord, I, I still pray that 
that you would give us the grace to experience the goodness of the forgiveness of sins. Lord, I, I pray that you would give us the grace to follow David along the path, Lord, of, of forgiveness, but also of accessing that forgiveness regularly, remembering that forgiveness regularly, confessing to you regularly, and experiencing that kind of joy that makes you want to shout. As we respond through song and then respond through our weeks, Lord, I pray that you would please make us a people that glorify your name and bring others to know that same joy too. Pray these things in your son's hope.